Three of my patients miscarried in one week. Others were in their fifth and sixth month. Managed to save two of the poor babies. Next week, five more miscarried. Then the miscarriages started happening earlier. I remember booking a woman in for her next appointment and noticing that the page seven months ahead was completely blank. Not a single name. As the sound of the playgrounds faded, the despair set in. I can't really remember when I last had any hope. And I certainly can't remember when anyone else did either. Because really, since women stopped being able to have babies, what's left to hope for? Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. The 2006 Alfonso Cuaron film, Children of Men, paints a bleak picture of a world that hasn't seen a successful pregnancy in 18 years. It's a premise that also animates The Handmaid's Tale. For whatever reason, human fertility plummets. And when it becomes incredibly difficult or impossible to procreate, society transforms in ugly ways as it nears collapse. But that's just science fiction, right? The number of men with good enough semen quality is declining all over the world. The rate at which things are deteriorating, that's about 1% per year. That's Dr. Shanna Swan, one of the world's leading environmental and reproductive epidemiologists. In 2017, she and her colleagues published a major study showing that sperm levels had plummeted over 50% in the last four decades. The clickbait headlines read, Spermageddon. Suddenly, those science fiction fertility nightmares started to seem a little more plausible. But there's one way in which Dr. Swan's work isn't sci-fi at all. In those sci-fi stories, they never bother to explain why humans are becoming infertile. Dr. Swan, by contrast, has a convincing argument for the cause of this decline. After talking to dozens of women about their struggles with infertility, we started to wonder what this problem looked like on a global scale. Dr. Swan's new book, Countdown, reveals the scope of this problem. For it's not just sperm counts that are declining. There's evidence that the sexual development and reproductive health of both men and women are under threat. Are we not worrying enough about what could be an existential threat to humanity itself? Such a thought is hard to believe. Even Dr. Swan was skeptical at first. Her interest in this field began over 30 years ago when she worked for the California Health Department. The first thing I was asked to do was to look into a complaint, actually, from a woman in Santa Clara County, south of San Francisco. She was concerned about too many miscarriages and birth effects in her neighborhood. That neighborhood was right next to a semiconductor plant that made chips. And in the making of chips, the chips have to be washed with a solvent. But then it turned out one of these storage tanks next to the Fairchild Camera and Instrument Company had leaked into the groundwater. It was a major leak into the groundwater. And this community was very close to this semiconductor plant. And that began 
my entry into this field of environment and reproductive health. And it also began a series of studies on miscarriage and semen quality in relation to solvent use. I have been very curious in all of my work to uncover how chemicals that have the ability to affect our hormones, how do they do that? What can they do? And why are they there? Why do we need them? Where do they come from? And how do these chemicals affect males and females differently? I was asked to be on a committee for the National Academy of Sciences. And that committee was given the charge of determining the strength of the association between endocrine disrupting chemicals and human health. There was a paper that came out in 1992 out of Denmark, and this paper claimed that sperm count had declined about 50% in about 50 years. The committee wanted to know whether this is something they should consider in their deliberations, and I said I would look at it. And so I did. I was actually skeptical. I thought, this is probably going to go away when we control for the many factors that could explain such a decline. So, for example, changes in method of counting sperm and changes in how the men were recruited. That's what we epidemiologists do. We try to look for explanations for findings and see whether they can be explained by other factors, which we call biases or confounders. So I undertook to do a pretty thorough investigation and I took six months to do that. This was the analysis of 61 studies. I looked in each of them for all of the factors I could think of that could explain this decline. And then I put it in a big statistical model. And by the way, I had two colleagues in the health department that helped me with this and did it independently because I wanted to make sure that this was done right. And when we were all done, It was quite amazing because the slope of the line had not changed Hmm. to this first decimal place. Wow. Hmm. It was amazing. I seldom see anything that stable. And so then I had to step back and say, whoa, wait, maybe this is real. And if it's real, what could be causing it? And so I thought, well, it's not genetics. It's too fast. It's two generations. We don't get 50% change. <laughs> right. So, so that's something environmental. And if it's environmental, then if we did a study where we brought the same kind of men into four different environments, got their semen sperm counts, measured them using exactly the same methods, then if there was an environmental factor, we should see that. So I designed that study to do that, and I got funding for that study, and that was called the Study for Future Families. And what we found was, yes, indeed, there was uh, influence of environment, and perhaps the most striking contrast was that men who were living in Columbia, Missouri, which is agricultural, there's a lot of corn and wheat around there, and they had only half as many moving sperm as men in Minneapolis. Wow. And then we actually measured pesticides in the Missouri men and shown that it was related to sperm count. So right then we had some pretty good evidence that semen quality was responsive to the environment. The environment could affect semen quality significantly. I pursued that track trying to figure out 
what in the environment affects male fertility and sperm count and reproductive health more generally and might explain that decline. This culminated in the shocking 2017 meta-analysis that Dr. Swan and her colleagues published. If you're not familiar, a meta-analysis is a form of statistical analysis that combines the results of many different scientific studies looking at the same question. This way, scientists are able to use existing data sets to draw new and often more firm conclusions. Let's get into the 2017 meta-analysis. What do we know? What does the data show? How robust is that data? How certain are we that this is happening and and how big of a deal is it? So the meta-analysis is just limited to sperm count and concentration. Count is the total number of sperm. Concentration is how many is in a unit of volume and volume is how much there is in the sample. The decline for total count was slightly more, 59% in our study period, compared to 52.4% for concentration. And that's from? 1973 to 2011. We have this meta-analysis that tells us what's happening with sperm counts. What do we know about the other associated fertility indicators for men? The meta-analysis is just about counts and concentrations. However, lots of other studies look at lots of other measures. And we're finding that overall, the decline in function is about the same rate. The rate at which things are deteriorating, that's about 1% per year. A very interesting measure is number of babies born, which is part male, part female, of course. And that number, which demographers call fertility, confusingly, has decreased from five children in 1960 to 2.4 children in 2018. So that's a 50% in about 50 years. And that's a worldwide figure, by the way. It's important to note that there are lots of explanations for a decline in fertility as defined this way, including economic and cultural trends, like the empowerment of women, which leads to higher female employment and decisions to have smaller families at a later age. That said, there are also many things that can't be accounted for by such social and economic explanations. Testosterone has gone down. Genital birth defects have gone up. Testicular cancer has gone up. Erectile dysfunction, as measured by testosterone use in young men, has gone up. And then there's this similar array on the female side. And the fact that these are occurring at approximately the same pace and they relate all to the reproductive system, suggests that they're all interrelated. They all are correlated. A man with a low sperm count is more likely to, of course, be infertile, but also more likely to go on to testicular cancer. They've been called the testicular dysgenesis syndrome. Hmm. And that's really critical because it points to the formation of the testes. Testicular testes, dysgenesis malformed, and a syndrome coming out of that. When you interfere with the development of the testes in utero, early pregnancy, that has ramifications at birth, in the birth defects you can see, and later testicular cancer, sperm count, and reproductive function, fertility, et cetera. What we're seeing is a disturbance in very early pregnancy, and then the question is what's causing that? And is this also supported by data with reproductive fertility issues with women? On the female side, there's 
less data, it's relatively easy to get a sperm count, but it's very hard to get an egg count. Hmm. Right. And even if you got a count of the eggs, which you could with a sonogram, you wouldn't know the quality of the eggs. You also don't know what's happening in the tubes and in the uterus. Women's fertility measures are hidden from us. And that's one of the reasons they haven't been examined for so long. But we do see miscarriage rates increasing at about 1% per year. Ringing a bell, right? We have premature ovarian failure. Diminished ovarian reserve. Yes, yes, exactly. We also see changes in pubertal timing, and there's endometriosis. The rise in infertility is in part a measure of female problems as well as men. So one of the things that I've noticed from my conversations with dozens and dozens of people, mostly women, is that the last time they ever had a conversation with anyone learning about fertility was in high school when they were told that if you look at a guy the wrong way, you're going to get pregnant. <laughs> That's a pretty limited amount of information, and we should go beyond that. And I think part of that is to help people understand how they could keep reproductively fit. Hmm. You know, we hear about heart health, about keeping your blood glucose down and keeping your blood pressure down. But in fact, your reproductive parameters are measures of health as well. When reproductive health is poor, for example, when men have low sperm count or are infertile, they actually have more heart disease, they have more diabetes, they have more cancers, and they die earlier. Wow. And women who have reproductive problems have implications for their later health, their reproductive cancers, and their mortality as well. So it's important to be aware that this is something that affects everybody and not just take it for granted. And even more importantly, to be aware of why this is happening. What's causing these declines in fertility measures around the world? Well, maybe we should get into the endocrine disrupting chemicals. What are these chemicals? Where are they found? And how do they disrupt our natural hormonal systems? So the first thing, I think everybody knows something about what hormones are and their signalers. They carry information from cells to organs and so on. And there's a lot of them in the body. And they're really important for function and development. The ones people are most familiar with are the steroid hormones and probably the most commonly known are testosterone and estrogen. Testosterone's thought of as the male hormone. Actually, women have it also, but at a lower level. And estrogen is thought of as the female hormone. And conversely, men have that also, but at a lower level. And also they trade off. These things are very fluid and they're very necessary for reproductive function. And because they're necessary for reproductive function, I was interested in chemicals that could alter them. So it turns out that there are many, many chemicals that have the ability to alter our own estrogen, testosterone, and other hormones. Everything we depend on to develop and function properly can be impacted by one or another chemical in the environment. So when I started to get into this, it was because a friend, John Brock, he was a chemist, back in 2000, I think. And he said, Shauna, you should study phthalates. 
And I was like, why? And what are phthalates? Phthalates are not something we usually hear about, but they're in products that we use every day. Phthalates make plastic soft and flexible. So any soft, squishy object like a rubber duck or a shower curtain or soft tubing will contain phthalates. Another class of phthalates increase absorption. So that could be absorption of a chemical into your skin Hmm. in a hand cream, or it could be a pesticide that you want to be absorbed into the plant. They also help maintain odor Hmm. and color. Hmm. So they're put into fragrances and they're put into nail polish, lipstick, anything with color. And what John Brock told me was that they were in everybody, including pregnant women. So that was the first part of the story. It still didn't motivate me to study them, though. (laughs) The second thing he told me actually did motivate me, because what he said was that there were a series of experiments done by the National Toxicology Program, which showed that when the mother rodent is exposed to certain phthalates early in pregnancy, then her male offspring were altered. Hmm. How were they altered? They had smaller genitals, they had more male genital defects, and later their fertility and sperm count was impaired. So there was pretty direct evidence that the chemicals that go into plastic tubing and then into our bodies, goes into the pregnant woman, goes into the fetus, affects testosterone, changes the development of the genitals. Phew really complicated. And it took me about 20 years to investigate that. Following John's good suggestion, I decided to look at that in humans. I knew if I got the urine from the mothers during pregnancy, I could see how much phthalates they were exposed to. Then we could say, okay, what happens on the other end when the baby's born? The cluster of changes that they had found at the National Toxic program were named the phthalate syndrome, which is pretty dramatic because there's not too many chemicals that have a syndrome named after them. So there was this phthalate syndrome. And the question very clearly is, does it occur in humans? I got the children to come back for an exam to look for the markers that had been seen in the animals. And the answer was yes. The answer was yes, that when the mother had higher levels of certain phthalates, particularly those that were known to lower testosterone, then we see these changes. Why testosterone, given all the hormones? Why was that so important? Well, it turns out that when the male general tract is developing in early pregnancy, it needs testosterone to become the genetically typical male. And if that isn't there, then the default, if you will, is that those organs don't develop and the male develops in a more feminine manner. Hmm. And people agree, I think, that we demonstrated the phthalate syndrome in humans. Well, why this is so important is that this was the first time that actually measured levels of these chemicals could be linked to the specific syndrome in humans, they led to lower sperm counts and infertility. So we had the complete path, if you will, from prenatal exposure to sperm count and infertility. On the level of the 
actual chemicals and hormones themselves, what is actually happening with the endocrine-disrupting chemical? Is it sort of mimicking, or is the body mistaking it for a natural bit of testosterone or something? There are many ways that endocrine-disrupting chemicals disrupt. One of those is through receptor binding. There are androgen receptors that are looking for androgen testosterone molecules. And if that receptor is occupied, then the body gets the signal that you don't have to produce any more testosterone. They can also interfere with transport and they can interfere with what's passed across a membrane. For example, the placental membrane, the testes barrier, blood-brain barrier. There's lots of ways, but it stems from this property of having the ability to reduce testosterone. Can we talk maybe about the global scale of all of this? You've discussed how there have been a rise in abnormalities with wildlife and other species. Are those caused by the same things that are causing human infertility? So the brief answer is yes. And the impacts of these chemicals on wildlife is universal, unless they're asexually reproducing. I'm not talking about those, but sexually reproducing animals will require steroid hormones of some kind. They might not be the same as ours, but the chances are good that they're going to be affected by these same chemicals. For example, atrazine, which is the second most commonly used pesticide in the world, affecting the general development of frogs to the point that you have male and female organs in the same animal. Hmm. You have alligators that are impacted by runoff from pesticides in agricultural areas in Florida where you see very small genitalia and very small clutches of eggs. So infertility, decreased reproductive function. I don't know any species that are not affected and everywhere as far away as the polar bears in the Arctic Circle. These things are circulated globally and their impacts are going to be important for the reproductive health of all of these species. And by the way, a little environmental justice point here, which is that those animals did not opt for this. They did not ask for this. They did not participate in this. It was This was imposed on them. And while we may have some choice, they don't. One reason these endocrine-disrupting chemicals may pose such a threat to human fertility is that exposure to them can affect successive generations in a cumulative way. The easiest way to think about transgenerational transmission of the effect of endocrine disruption is to think about who's exposed. So the mother is exposed. She uses the plastic stuff. That stuff gets into her bloodstream. Then it crosses the placenta and it gets into the bloodstream of the fetus. Okay, so that's two generations. And then within that fetus are the germ cells that go on and make the eggs and the sperm for the next generation. And they're exposed. Right. So these three generations are exposed. The plastic that I'm getting from microwaving in this plastic container while I'm pregnant could play out in the offspring of my child and conceivably later generations as well. Right. Pat Hunt has done some beautiful work. She's at the University of Washington. What she's shown is the impact of successive exposure. When your child's offspring is born, they are also exposed. So they get a double whammy. And she showed that in three generations, 
that 20% of her animals would be completely infertile. Wow. But you want to know the good news side of that? Sure. Yeah. Pat also showed that if you clean up the environment of the rodents, in three generations, you can recover normal function. Amazing. So that's really encouraging. Well, if we don't figure out a way to solve this problem, clean up our environment, what is our trajectory? How realistic or unrealistic is a children of men type scenario? Well, we don't have to go very far to see that more and more people are using assisted reproduction. Mm -hmm. That's definitely on the increase. And by the way, it's a big environmental justice piece here, too, because not everyone can afford that. Yep. Not only within a country like the U.S., but also worldwide. There definitely is going to be increasing use of assisted reproduction. If you just look at the sperm count decline, I was asked by many people to say, well, when does it hit zero? In 2011, 47 million sperm per milliliter, okay? 47 million per milliliter is close to the point at which couples have trouble conceiving, take longer to conceive. The probability of conception in every month goes down as you go below 40. Hmm. That was 10 years ago. So if you continue that line, which I am reluctant to do because I'm a statistician and I don't like to go past my data, but mm -hmm. you could hypothetically say it's zero in 2045. Gosh, that is not far away. <laughs> I'm not saying that's where we're going to get to. Biological curves are not straight lines. So biologically, you cannot just go down to zero, period. Nevertheless, the bottom line is you're going to be extremely low and you're going to be needing more and more assisted reproduction. While Dr. Swan's work made shockwaves in the scientific community, not everyone is in agreement with her hypothesis. Recently, a new paper by a team at Harvard reevaluated Swan's 2017 meta-analysis and argued that it had methodological problems. One area they focused on was the distinction between Western populations and other populations in Swan's study. Their worry is essentially political in nature. They write, the paper has been marshaled in service of the narrative that the fertility and health of men in whiter Western nations are in imminent danger. Such narratives about the decline of men have been taken up by white supremacist and misogynist groups who claim that men in the global North are victims of their liberal feminist environments. This has, in fact, happened. Alt-right figures have harped on the sperm count decline as a sign of the supposed feminization of men. The sperm counts among men in developed Western nations have dropped by 50 to 60 percent since 1973. Is it any wonder that cuckoldry is becoming mainstream and even being seen as a positive? So to all the guys who watch my channel regularly, embrace your toxic masculinity. The authors of the new study admit up front that they are reacting to this type of thing in their efforts to show that sperm counts may not be declining which sounds to us like political bias influencing their thinking. You should always be skeptical when your chosen theory has political consequences you greatly prefer. 
The fact that Swan's theory has been bolstered by the alt-right is annoying and inconvenient for her, and a good sign that her thinking is not influenced by political outcomes. In fact, the only reason Swan's studies specify that the sperm count decline was happening in Western populations was because the data was not robust enough in the rest of the world to show statistically significant trends there. But that does not mean the decline isn't happening globally. It's also worth noting here that the new study isn't based on new data. Its authors are using the same data from Swan's study and merely forming an alternate interpretation of that data. They argue for what they call the sperm count biovariability hypothesis. Essentially, they claim that the decline in sperm counts may just be the result of natural variation over time. We're not statisticians or epidemiologists, so we won't venture an opinion on which hypothesis has the greater weight of evidence behind it. What is definitely certain is that the count has been declining and that we don't have much data prior to 50 years ago. So this decline could be the result of a natural cycle that ebbs and flows over the decades, as the Harvard study argues. However, the new study only addresses sperm count and says nothing about the many other indicators of fertility problems on both the male and the female side that support Dr. Swan's hypothesis. Furthermore, the authors of the new study present no convincing explanatory model for why sperm count would vary over time like this. And the natural variance over time hypothesis bears a striking similarity to the arguments made by climate change deniers who acknowledge rising global temperature trends, but chalk them up to natural cycles of the Earth rather than human activity. So how would you compare the denial of the gravity of this issue to climate change? So initially, climate change was denied altogether, and then it was accepted as a phenomenon. But people said, well, it's not about human behavior. Right. And then human behavior began to be considered as an important cause. And the same thing with sperm decline. When the paper came out in 92, it was denied. I even denied it. And then gradually, as the evidence came in, I think now in my 2017 paper, I don't get people saying there's no sperm decline. What they're saying is, well, it's not due to these chemicals. Huh. That's like the climate deniers saying, well, it's not man-made. Right, exactly. I think that we're maybe where climate change was 40 years ago. We really don't have all that time. So we have to speed up the pace at which we you know, recognize this and do something about it. We have to get people educated. And one thing to remember is reproductive health is not a very public subject. People are not inclined to talk about their reproductive health. It's quite private. It, it touches very deeply if somebody feels that their reproductive health has been threatened. And people you know, would prefer to put that in a corner. So we have to take it out of the corner and shed the light on it and see what's going on. Well, maybe we should talk about what the solutions to this crisis are, both in terms of practical measures and modes of thinking. One of the things that we were both shocked by was this, tell me if we're pronouncing this right, the Paracelsus's law. That the dose makes a poison? Yes, and that this has underlied our regulatory framework for forever, and that it doesn't necessarily apply to these chemicals. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? So that method of doing toxicology assumes that you start at a very high dose and you get bad outcomes. And then you lower the dose 
and you still have bad outcomes. And then you step it down until you see no observable effect. And that's called a NOEL, no observable effect level. And that's where you stop. That's traditional toxicology because it assumes that the only way that things can get bad is if the dose gets higher, okay? But in fact, it's possible and often is the case for hormones that the curve is not a straight line Hmm. and is usually in endocrinology non-monotonic, curved. I like to give the example of exercise. If you exercise too much, if you're a woman who's running 35 miles a week, you might stop menstruating. Your hormones will be affected and your reproductive function will definitely go down. On the other hand, if you don't exercise at all, become overweight, your fertility will go down. In the middle, there's a sweet spot. Right. So that's an example of a non-monotonic dose response. Best in the middle, bad on either side. It's not the case that more is either better or worse. It depends where you are in the curve, right? That's the way hormones behave. Not all of them, but many of them. So the fact that we've used the old school method of doing toxicology means that we miss the bad effects at the low end. Right. And sometimes those are even more severe than the bad effects on the high end. What we have to do to protect ourselves is we have to allow toxicology to look at least for these low dose effects. And we are not protected that way now. Is that about putting the burden on the chemical companies to prove safety here before all of us become the test population? Well, that's certainly part of it. Aside from the low-dose effects, there's just a lot of chemicals that have never been tested at all. Because they were grandfathered in, if they were on the market and they're generally recognized as safe, they were just not tested. So there's just lots and lots of chemicals that we just really don't know what they're doing. Give you one example, cosmetics. Mm -hmm. There are something like 11 or 13 chemicals that have been banned from use in cosmetics in the United States. In Europe, it's over a thousand. Wow. They're using stricter criteria. They're using more modern testing methods. And they are requiring proof of safety before marketing. And that's the really key thing that we need to adopt. Well, on a personal detox or lifestyle level, do we really need to pay an extra dollar for that organic parsley? And like, what about Ziploc bags? And how panicky should we be that the microwave food cover is made of plastic, even if the food is on a ceramic plate. What's our level of anxiety that you recommend here? (laughs) (laughs) Because it's pretty high right now. (laughs) In Countdown, as you know, we have a lot of tips, a lot of things that people can do to reduce their exposure. So we can lower our exposure. But I want to stress that the people that should be most careful and maybe even a little compulsive about this, are couples intending to get pregnant. And that's both the man and the woman because the man's exposure, we know, conveys risk just as the woman's does in early pregnancy. Hmm. I would say go out of your way to err on the side of caution in that time period. Other than that, I would say you can probably relax a little. (laughs) Right now, my concern is for the pregnant woman, the fetus, and the father who is intending to become pregnant. You noted that the methods for fighting the harmful effects of these endocrine-disrupting chemicals are kind of the same as are a lot of the things we need to do to combat climate change. Do these two movements need to be 
kind of intertwined here? And do you see that happening? I wish I could get a few words in there about environmental chemicals because it's not on that horizon at all. And it should be. These chemicals are made from petroleum. If they were made from something else like potatoes, we'd have a very different (laughs) scenario. Right. I think that we desperately need the climate change activists to recognize this part of the problem. That's not to lessen the severe crisis of climate change. It's just to say this is an accompanying crisis that could be dealt with simultaneously. It also might be a good way to reach the people who don't really care about (laughs) the environment and instead be like, okay, well, you don't care about the butterflies and the bees, but do you care about your own sperm? And it's apolitical, I think. There's a lot of politics around climate change, but I think everyone wants to support the right of a couple to have a healthy child who is not pre-polluted in the womb. I think with the will to make change, we can do a lot. Recently, we put a lander on Mars. Who would have thought that was possible? So I don't want to say this is not possible. I just say that it's very hard. What would you say to couples who are experiencing struggles with fertility, given what you've learned about how that sits in the context of this bigger story? Well, I would say that they should learn what they can do to limit their own personal exposures, both in terms of chemicals and in terms of lifestyle, and they make those changes. And I think it would be good if they didn't blame themselves. Hmm because we don't need that and it's not helpful. We've been trying not to blame ourselves on this journey to become pregnant. It hasn't always been easy. But you keep going. You try again. You burn through ovulation testers. You wait for that missed period. And you cross your fingers. Hold the tip in the urine stream for five seconds. Oh dear, okay. recording audio of our own experience from day one. Stay tuned for our next mini-series, 280 Days, where we take you on an intimate journey from conception to birth. And get some scientific wisdom along the way from Dr. Emily Oster, best-selling author of Expecting Better, Crib Sheet, and most recently, The Family Firm. So come on, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And in all honesty, we could really use your support. We're fully independent, and listener donations are what keeps this podcast alive. 
check out our Patreon page, where you'll find exclusive patron-only content, from ethics debates on silly and controversial subjects, to book recommendations, to live monthly Q&As. This episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us, with theme music by Josh Budo-Karp.